0: Gospel with Dr. Halista Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, so Shabbat Shalom. What I'm going to do is I want to give you a preview of a new series that I just uh, started on Herbic Roots Network. It's called More Than, and uh, they're not already yet. There's a few that are uploaded, Um, but I thought this week would be a great time to do more than a box because the Torah portion describes the, the tefillin that we're supposed to wear, not just the Shema, but the tefillin that we're supposed to wear on our foreheads and on our arms. And it actually describes other places. So we'll take a look at that, like why in so many places? And why does it take the form that it has today, Uh, at least within Judaism? Kind of give you an overview of of one of those programs that was actually taken from the Torah portion at Kev. So I think that'll, that'll turn out pretty nice, hopefully. All right. So I entitled this something old, something new, because it kind of goes with a wedding. You know, what's the old tradition? The bride's supposed to have something old, something new. I'm not even sure where that came from. But in terms of our relationship with the Holy One, it's always something old and something new at the very same time. And so today I'd like to look at some of the commandments in the Torah portion at Kev because they're vital. I mean, they they really form the core of what we do. It's um, the Shema. Anytime we get together, we say the Shema. And if you're with a strange, I don't know if it's like strange, like weird group of people, but with a group of strangers, if they're walking in the tour, there's one thing you'll have in common. If somebody starts singing the Shema, everybody will sing it. And it's pretty much the same tune, no matter where you go. So it is, it's like a binder of the community, no matter where you go on earth, but there's more commandments that go with this and it encompasses uh, what in Judaism is called the tefillin that might be um, translated into English as phylacteries. And I'm not sure where, it must be a Greek word. I never looked up phylacteries because it sounded too much like another word that is really strange to me. So tefillin, we'll stick with the Hebrew there, and it's even described at that, with other words, like they'll be like, you know, between your eyes. But if you've ever seen a Jewish male who's laying tefillin, granted, it looks a little odd. You know, it doesn't, you know, if you read the commandment, you don't necessarily derive what's what you're seeing from the, the, the literal commandment itself. But it kind of goes back to if we were supposed to guard and remember the Shabbat how does that look like in a real form? These are pretty vague words. These are spirit words. But if we're going to guard and keep, then we have to draw it down into the natural realm, right? It's got to be something observable. And so as these commandments are, it's like, it's, uh, what's the saying? he. It's not up in the heavens. It's not down at the bottom of the ocean. It's near you. It's in your mouth. He's given things to us, to work this out. Here's the commandment. Now figure out how it works. You figure out how it's going to look. And that's where we become partners with Hashem. And so often as you see this, especially as you notice, the, it's kind of an involved process, especially the head tefillin, they're not that big a deal. It's basically a headband you put on. The knot has to be in a certain place. The box has to sit in that soft spot where you're born. But other than that, you know, that's not much of a challenge. This going onto the arm looks like way more of a challenge. Like there's a procedure there. And if you only knew what he was doing, there might be some meaning to it. And there is. So you'll you'll notice, first of all, that the box, which another word for the box is uh, bait, house. So the box is a house. And he's putting the house on his arm. And so the box will sit right here. And It's going to, hopefully, once everything's in place, point toward the heart, right? So the the heart of the house, and the house is the heart. He'll take seven bindings down his arm, which seven has all sorts of meanings, right? Especially the seven spirits. And that's going to be, if we have time, we'll get to it, like, where does the 666 come from? And what does that have to do with the seven? Because it's in the tefillin that you can find the secret. It's not really a secret. It's just, it's been there for thousands of years. But if you know what is on a, a tefillin, then you'll understand 666 versus the seven spirits of nine that you're reading about in Revelation. So it takes seven bindings, and then he's going to wind it around his hand. And then finally, you'll notice that He'll, he'll wind it around like a ring on his finger. You say, well, you know, in one place, it just says, you know, your head and on your hand. Why are we getting the arm? Why are we getting the finger? Why are we getting all this wrap? Um, basically, what they tried to do when they they set this was to hit all those passages. They brought all those passages together and everywhere the scripture said to put it, it ends up being... Once you you know actually lay the tefillin. Like Proverbs 7, 1 through 3, it says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. So that explains why the binding goes all the way down and it actually looks like a ring. And we'll go over the scripture that they recite when they when they do this ring binding. But if you put it on the tablet of your heart, that's kind of the purpose of aiming it toward the heart when you situate it on the bicep itself. So I believe it's in Vayetchanan, our previous portion, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It says, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, which I am commanding you to de- today, shall be on your heart. Yet another reason for the, the house to aim to the heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, right? So here we get the forehead idea, but then we also get the hand wrap. So you can see that's an additional place as they, they put the wrap on. It says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. So the Shema, the Tefillin, and the Mezuzah are three related commandments. You're getting them all within a small portion. The real estate of the text is really small right there. And when you squeeze those three ideas into a a little bit of acreage, it's telling you that one is teaching you about the other. I don't know if you ever knew that, but often that's what real estate will do on the, the text of the parchment. So, when they design the, the tefillin, it will also have something in common with Passover. It's going to have four sections. It's going to have Exodus 13, 1 through 10, the little parchments that go inside the box or the house. Uh, Exodus 13, 11 through 16. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And then out of this week's Torah portion, Kev is going to be Deuteronomy 11, 12 through 21. So those four sections, and they have to be assembled in a specific order. And then once they're They're done by the scribe perfectly. They're rolled up, almost kind of like folded in in some respects. If I'm going to let you look inside, I'm going to give you a peek, a close-up peek at what they look like inside. So you can see how small those parchments have to be. But then they put them into the house. They put the commandments into the house, and the house is composed of an animal hide. And what are we covered with after we fell out of the garden? animal skins. So we need the commandments in our animal skins, right? But this has something in common with the Passover, because as you have to have these four sections in the tefillin, you also drink four cups of wine at the Passover Seder. And when you get done drinking those four cups of wine, there's a little blurb in the Haggadah, and it says the order of the Pesach service is now completed correctly. In accordance with all its ordinances and statutes. So there's an order to everything. And it wasn't it Paul that said, let everything be done decently and mm-hmm. in order. And we kind of rebel. Americans really don't like the order word. We don't like the discipline words. We don't like the authority words. Nevertheless, without discipline, authority, and order, the world descends into chaos. And the more we remove our our boundaries, the more that we can probably expect to see the chaos. And so the, the Passover service, it has a particular order, just like the order of the commandments as they go into the tefillin. And so the, the next slide is going to have a close-up where you can see what I mean about not just rolling these scriptures up, but you kind of have to compress them and flatten them out in order to get them into their little rooms in the house. See how they <laughs> they really have to get crammed in there to get inside of the house. And every so often, they'll take these to a scribe, and the scribe will take it apart, pull the parchments out, and make sure that there's been no damage to them. And that's important, just like with the mezuzah. How many of you have parchments inside your mezuzah on your house? If you don't check those very often, it doesn't hurt to because they're exposed to the elements if they're on the outside of your door. And what can happen is water, wind, weather, wear, it can actually wash away or fade out letters. And if you start fading out letters, especially in Hebrew, you end up with different words. And it might end up saying the exact opposite of what it's supposed to say. And and that's why it's important because. Again, it's it's like you have to be really careful. You see if you go to conferences a lot of times, you'll see people selling products that have the sacred name on it. You have to be so careful if you have an object that has the sacred name on it because if you erase or you mess up, cut out, throw in the trash, you know, if you get done with this t-shirt, you throw it in the trash, you see how that's a problem. Because the way that you're handling the name is not sacred. You're handling it just like another dirty T-shirt. And so we want to think through those things and learning how to handle a mezuzah, tefillin, and so forth. It reminds us to be careful with how we're handling yod heh and so that we're not even making up new words. That's one thing the computers are always challenged. with. I can't tell you how many gobbledygook tattoos people have sent me pictures of that said, what does this say in Hebrew? I'm like, it doesn't say anything. It's backward. <laughs> <laughs> Your computer didn't flip it. So you're wrong two ways right there. In the Haggadah, you've got an order of service, and it also has the content of the service for Passover. And if we were to say "beseder" in modern Hebrew, that means, okay everything's good, everything's in order, everything's organized. And this is the way that tefillin are designed, assembled, and put on each day. They need to be in a specific order. And the Haggadah, it's going to be a telling of the exodus to the next generation. So already you see the hook between these two things, just as observing the Passover is going to be like the sign on our forehead and on our hand—you're going to see a lot of things in common. When you do the Passover Hagadah, it's done in steps. It's done in an order. Therefore, they do the Tefillin. They put on the—they create them and then they put them on in a specific order, and they're done repetitively. Well, if you do a, a traditional Passover Seder. It's not much different from year to year, is it? I mean, the the games you play with the kids might be different, but the content of the Haggadah doesn't change much unless you just decide to pick something different or make it up yourself from the internet. And there's specific websites that'll let you make your own Haggadah. I I don't know exactly how they work. I've never been to one, but I've heard about them. But this commandment is to teach the children the words. And it's showing to speak in them, right? So when you put on the tefillin, in a sense, it's just like teaching your children. They're both like a Haggadah. It's a repetitive telling. You put on the tefillin six days a week. You don't put them on Shabbat because Shabbat's the sign on Shabbat. The other six days of the week, when you put on the tefillin, that's considered the sign for a weekday, the visible sign for a weekday. A sign has to be something visible. It can't be something invisible because if we start doing that, then we start doing spiritual Shabbats and spiritual kosher eating and spiritual, which means we're not doing it at all. (laughs) It's just another way of double speak. If it's all spiritual, like who wants to be married just in spirit? No, you want to be with that person. And so you need to, to match up the spiritual with the natural. So it's this repetitive telling by putting the tefillin, you're repetitively telling This story of your relationship with the Holy One. It's an ancient story, but it's a new story every day when you put them on. Same way with your children. It's an ancient story of the Exodus, but it's a new story every year when you tell it. Because you have to tell it every single year as if you were there. Okay, so how are these made? Um, I got a picture here that that shows you different stages of the process. Um, This would be a cowhide that you can see in the pictures here. And uh, a scribe in Jerusalem let me get some good close-ups of his workshop. And so you can see the the rough hide where he's getting a rough form and making those four compartments or those four rooms in the house. And then it's got a little more definition to it. And then finally, he's going to be able to fold it in and finish out the outside, and it'll have the form that we're used to seeing from the outside. It's another... I want to look at the ancient tefillin. That's important because everybody wants to bring up, the, you know, the time in the Gospels where Yeshua says, "Don't make your tefillin big and don't make your zizi long." But in order to do something, and that something was to be noticed, he didn't say, "Don't do it." He said, "Don't do it to be noticed." And it's it's interesting that at those In that particular time period, these tefillin, they were more rectangular in shape. They still have the four rooms. You can see these. These are from, um, I want to say these are from Giza. They were dug up. But that's huge compared to the actual size. The actual size is like this, where you could literally put it on like a headband and wear it all day. And it it wouldn't interfere with anything. And it really wouldn't stand out any more than (laughs) any other headband. So I can only imagine how tiny those scribes would have to have written. Look at the size of those scrolls in there. Can you imagine? I mean, like, that's like, what, four-point font? But but they were really tiny. So if people were making huge tefillin, it would stand out to be noticed because the, the average everyday wearer, when they wore them, a lot of the men did wear them all day if they didn't have a job where it would have been detrimental. Just like if you wear your seat seat and let's say today you worked around machinery, you'd want to tuck those babies in unless you wanted to become very intimate with that machine when it sucked you in there by your seat seat. So there's common sense, right? But they were, they were very small and there was no reason to make them larger. It's interesting. And the next slide is a picture of the conical tefillin. They weren't always rectangular like that. Some of them wore something that once you put it on, it looked like a horn sticking out of the front of your head. And what's interesting is that it was the Nazarene Jews who were followers of Yeshua who became known for this sort of tefillin. They were the ones wearing the horns (laughs) on their heads. Um, And it was what I could read was that Often the the Nazarene Jews would decorate their tefillin with, you know, very elaborate metalwork, to decorate it, like decorating the commandment. Nothing wrong with that uh, if you're doing it for the right reason. I mean, just like you save your good Shabbat stuff for Shabbat in terms of their sign of the commandments each day, they were decorating that sign of the commandments. As long as you're not doing it to be noticed or flash your wealth, probably nothing wrong with it. But if that interests you, the what they dug up concerning these older tefillin, some people say, would Yeshua have worn them? Absolutely. Yeah, he would have stood out if he didn't. That, that would be one of those things. But you can find that in workbook six. And then here we've got a, a picture of the parchment itself. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty thick, even though I can't pass it around to you and let you feel it and, and see the thickness of it. it is, it's pretty thick when you look at what they're writing on there. And then here we've got some of the pins, which of course you can see are feathers. And you can see they've seen some pretty good use. So they're still doing it the old-fashioned way, sharpening a piece of wood or a feather in order to write the script. And if you think of, why would they still be using a feather? Well, what does a feather symbolize? The Holy Spirit. And especially like using the feather to go find the last of the chametz at Pesach, you know, the Holy Spirit helping you to find those remnants of sin in your life. Um, so in this case, it's like the Holy Spirit is aiding the scribe as he's writing out the text. So let's let's look. I, I made a peculiar statement. I said, you're going to be teaching in them. When you're, when you're teaching to your children, you're going to teach in them. Deuteronomy 11, 19. It says, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. And the key word there is uh, bomb in them, led the bear bomb to speak in them. You're not speaking at your kids. I know sometimes it feels like you're speaking at your kids, like there's nothing getting soaked up. But you might be surprised what they're soaking up. Sometimes they soak up the wrong things. But <laughs> at any rate, you want to speak the right things into them. That's the, the picture of teaching your children. Put it into them. And so the idea of bomb in them is that you shall teach them to your children so they can speak in them. Le de bomb. We want them to speak in them, not just you speaking to your children, but you put the words in the children. And because the words are in the children, now they will begin to speak the words that you spoke to them. So you're teaching your children until you have spoken into their inner being is what that means. You speak until they can speak the words themselves. And isn't it lovely when you hear your kids or your grandkids talking Torah back to you or talking Torah into a situation a lot of times they'll surprise you. You think they weren't paying attention and they'll just call something out and apply Torah to it. And that's got to be a thrill for a parent or a grandparent. They also, as they're teaching their children, they make a habit of quoting. Uh, they'll start with Moses taught us in the Torah. Remember something old, something new. Moses was an old guy. <laughs> he was an old guy even when he started. Torah. He, now he's a really old guy but the word is new to your children. So it becomes a natural pattern of speech and a point of reference when they encounter a real life situation. And so a lot of times children at a certain age, they're not going to sit there and think, well, what did dad tell me to do about this? (laughs) That's probably the last thing they're thinking. What did dad tell me to do? What did mom tell me to do? I've asked inmates that before. If you had done what your mom told you, would you be in prison? Like, No, (laughs) But they get in the habit of saying, Moses taught us in the Torah, and then they'll teach him the commandments. And so there's a thought pattern. And, and as you're encountering a question, a problem, an obstacle, you turn to the child and say, Moses taught us in the Torah. This is what we do in this situation. You know, if you're you're shopping for lunch meat, and you're looking through the lunch meat, and you're going through the decision-making process, don't leave the child out of that. Pull them over there and say, hey, Moses taught us in the Torah, that these are the types of animals that we can eat. And these are the types of animals that we can't eat. Get them in the the practice of distinguishing between what is food and what isn't for you. And so as they approach a new situation, let's say they're 16 now, you send them to the store and you say, I need this. They'll go back to that counter and they'll think Moses taught us in the Torah. That that wasn't what Moses taught us. (laughs) Let me keep looking for the right thing. You want them to internalize it. So that it is actually transferred to the next generation, and so the the idea here is as a mutual benefit between the parent and the child. You're both benefiting from this transaction. It's a transaction. It's not just you talking at the child. It's you speaking into the child, and letting the child again reflect that back to you. And so it's going to force you as a parent to study more intensively. You don't leave this to the the Shabbat school teacher. You don't leave this to kids' class. You don't leave this to a cute little pamphlet. This is something the parent personally does. And so you as the parent now have to study more intensively because they will ask questions. They're just like us. Don't we have a million questions about what the Torah says? (laughs) Well, if we're inquisitive, they are too. And that's when it becomes a transaction. Transaction. The great thing about this is you start to teach your child the Torah. If you do something hypocritical, they're going to call it out. Don't you want to be called out if you do something hypocritical? Or do you want to tell them, well, let's just sweep that under the rug. This is just something that daddy gets away with. No. If they call it out, they're just, it's just as valid for them to notice that you're not practicing what you preach as any other person. And you might take it from your children, your own children, better than a stranger. And so it puts you on your best behavior. I have to practice what I preach, and they will spot it pretty fast. Or maybe you're not being hypocritical. Maybe they don't understand completely yet, and you need to clarify, this is actually what it means. This is not hypocrisy. Grown-up situation. We know that certain commandments have to be weighed out when it looks like they clash, like Sabbath day well, we got fires going on a Sabbath day. They were sacrificing animals. There was all sorts of work going on on the Sabbath day in the temple, but we know you have to weigh that out because there's special Sabbath commandments that outweigh the regular Shabbat prohibitions. And so you have to take the specifics and apply that and showing them how to do that and and see how those decisions are made. That's great practice and like i say they will tell on you. So <laughs> uh, but they will benefit and it says that this will prolong their lives. I mean, how much stuff do your children do that we know will prolong their lives? Well, we know this will this will prolong their days. So it's it's a wonderful thing to teach Torah to your children. They're teach they're learning to honor you. They're becoming part of the transaction and the process. And that was the promise in that passage, Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21. It says, so that the days, your days and the days of your children may be multiplied on the land, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them. We want to prolong their lives. And Rashi comments concerning that, to give them. He says, to give you is not written here, but rather to give them, not to give you, to give them. From here, we find that we learn that the resurrection of the dead is is. From something. It has a source in the Torah. We would have expected the verse to say, to give you, for it was those whom Moses was addressing who would take possession of the land, not the patriarchs about whom he was speaking. So he says the verse implies that the patriarchs will be resurrected and receive the land in person. This goes back to our something old, something new. It's not just going to be a current generation that is resurrected. But going all the way back to the righteous people of old, we're all going to receive that inheritance. So, like I said, in the real estate, you've got the the tefillin and the mezuzah, the shema, all these things kind of bunched together. Observing these commandments, it's more than just prolonging your life in a physical land. It's teaching not just ourselves, but it's teaching our descendants how to join with their ancestors. If they are believers, then Abraham is their father. They they have a family relationship. And so if Abraham resurrects from the dead, so will they. They're all part of that same family. And so what you're helping them to do, hopefully, is not just how to simply obey a commandment. You're showing them how these commandments are connecting them to a spiritual land that's hovering just above the land of Israel called the Garden of Eden. And how the whole point of Yeshua is to save us so that he can reinstate us, so that he can restore us to the place for which we were made to live. And so you're giving them a purpose for living. It's not just to get saved and then, you know, ride out the clock till they die. There's no purpose in that. But there's a kingdom that they are to prepare for they realize that there's a realm just beyond what they can see that is their home. They learn to relate to that home. Um, So we put this word in order to improve their vision. We put it between the eyes. We got one spiritual and we got one physical. If you lose sight of the spiritual, the letter kills. If you lose sight of the physical, you're not doing anything. It's just spirit. So you have to put these two eyes, the natural eye and the spiritual eye, together in order to keep the commandments. Um, They were never just conditions for living in a physical land. They were always commandments to help us carry on a spiritual and physical life in the Garden of Eden when we're restored. And so they're preparation for us. And if we're rebelling against the commandments, then how in the world do we expect to live long in that spiritual land? If it spit out Adam and Eve, it's not going to let us drag all our sins in there with us. Uh, that, that We're saved in Yeshua, but then he expects us to begin learning his righteousness and putting on his robes of righteousness. Uh, yes, there is mercy, but that mercy is not for you to go around sinning on purpose to make grace abound. Paul said that's foolish. Don't be thinking like that. So, if we back up one Torah portion to Va'etchanan, it says, Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments, which I am commanding you today to do them. And then that's the concluding verse of Va'etchanan. Then we reach a cave where we are this week. And what separates last week's Torah portion from this week's Torah portion is a Hebrew letter, peh, peh, and it's like a mouth. Peh literally means a mouth. There's a mouth between last week and this week. But there's this concluding verse of Be'etchanan. It points out that we should keep the mitzvot, the commandments, the chokim, which is the statutes, and they have no rational explanation. It's like kosher eating. It's not a healthy diet. It's spiritually healthy, but you can eat kosher all day long and you can still have disease. You can be overweight. You can be underweight. You can have all sorts of health problems because you can abuse what's within those boundaries. And then there's the mishpat, which is the judgments. Those three things are what concluded the echanan. So he says, keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which I'm commanding you that to do today, to do them. And then you'll see at the end, if you're reading it in Hebrew, it'll say peh, peh, peh. And then it switches over to this week's Torah portion in verse 12, ekev. It says, then it shall come about. That's where you hear ekev, then, because of. It shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them. That the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness. Which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. Right. So it's there's kind of a, a flip here. If we say Hanan from last week, it's like I pleaded for mercy, but now it's switching over to a kev. Right. And so we still have to do these things, but he brings into the equation mercy, loving kindness, love. And it seems like the, the loving kindness and the love maybe should have gone with v'etchanan instead of kev because akev makes you think of, well, because of, because I do this, you'll do this. There's not much love there. It's just a transaction. But of course, there's more to it. Remember, you've got three pez that are separating v'etchanan from akev And these are scribal instructions, the same guys that are going to do your parchments for your tefillin. They're told to leave that line open. If you see that, it means leave the line open right here so that people can see the difference between Ba'echanan and Ekev. What many, many, many hundreds, thousands of years later was labeled verses 11 and 12. When Moses wrote the Torah, he didn't write verse 11 and verse 12. (laughs) We did that. (laughs) And so in that ancient text, it helped him, again, make that separation. That's one of the more ancient divisions of Scripture. Once you recognize the the pe, and pe is short for ketucha, which means open. It looks like an open mouth, so it's easy to remember, like stop. But they're saying pretty much the same thing. Why is the last verse of Echanan pretty much the same as the ver- first verse of kev? And why do we need to separate them? Well, again, it goes back to causality and type. Verse eleven. Remember, it listed the mitzvah, the chuk, and the mishpat. Verse 12 specifies mishpatim, not the mitzvah, not the chukim. It specifies the mishpatim. Why just the mishpatim? Once you switch over to a new Torah portion, it says, okay, now the mishpatim is what I want to emphasize. Mishpatim are usually torts. Have you ever studied any law? A tort, it's a law that regulates, often it's talking about like a monetary transaction. Or an interaction between people. It's how you do business. Tort law, if you do business, you need to have a, you know, at least a basic understanding of tort law because it defines how we relate to one another under the law. What is a swindle, right? Bernie Madoff could have benefited from that class. <laughs> <laughs> But he points out, the commentators point out that the mishpatim, because they're business related often, or they regulate interactions between people, they're often neglected and abused, or they're twisted to serve the stronger party in the relationship. That's pretty easy to see. If you just pull up the news, scan through the articles, you can see that often the the rules, the laws, they are twisted to serve the stronger party. And so they say the temptation is to consider the mishpatim lighter than the other commandments, um, such as kosher eating, which is a chuk, Shabbat observance, a mitzvah. But Rambam says that being happy on a a holiday is not lightweight; it's heavyweight, and that can be tough because sometimes we don't feel happy during Sukkot. <laughs> Especially if Sukkot didn't go our way. (laughs) But he says, it's not lighter. It's just as heavy as any mitzvah or any chuk. It's just as important as what you pick out from the meat counter. The commandment to be happy is not light. Um, He says, learning Hebrew, because we're told to teach the Torah to your children. And of course, they equate that with teaching it in the original language. So if you're teaching your kids Hebrew in order to teach them the commandments, Uh, so that they're not misunderstanding, mistranslating. He says, that's not lightweight. To teach your kids Hebrew is just as heavy as any other commandment, because you're teaching them the most direct way to understand the commandments. And he says, there's also a temptation to think that the way we treat one another is just going to have some minimal reward to it, some minimal payoff. If I'm kind to somebody in the grocery store that Because I'm going to forget it five minutes later, God probably will too. No, He won't. These things have just as heavy a reward. So they're saying that according to Ekev, if you'll put just as much emphasis on the Mishpatim as you do upon the Mitzvot or the Chukim, it shows that you are a person in pursuit of a loving relationship with Adonai, that you consider every word of His precious even down to not taking the baby bird away from the mama bird. They say that, what is the least of the commandments? Maybe that they say that one is. But if you're being kind to an animal, somebody might turn their nose up and say, well, that's gotta be the least of the commandments. And he says, no, it's just as heavy as any other. Because if you will treat the light ones that the world thinks is light, as if they are just as heavy as all the others, it says that you are a person in pursuit of the heart of Adonai because he doesn't write casual words. He doesn't write lightweight words. Every word of his is heavy, and you're not weighing one heavier than the other. It's just as much important for me to love my neighbor as for me to love him. A kev, it's a transition, and it can mean because, it can mean after. It comes from that three-letter root meaning heal. So it follows the intent of the foot, which remember, uh, the feet that run quickly to evil, it's the fifth abomination of the wicked lamp. But if your foot is quick to follow good, wow, you are really moving up in spiritual power, because it corresponds to the spirit of Gavura and the seven spirits of Adonai, and that is a resurrection power. By the way, you can resurrect things in your life and the lives of other people if you will pursue good. As fast as some people run after evil and an evil report. So because Israel listens to the Mishpatim and guards and does them, then he says, Adonai will safeguard you. And he will uphold you in the covenant. He will uphold you with mercy. It's because you're you're chasing him down even in the small things. And Does that put us in jeopardy of making his grace of no effect? Not at all. That's not what it's saying. Because, you know, the grace is mentioned specifically in a calf because you're going to get grace. Because you do this, you're going to get grace. You didn't earn it, but because you're after his heart, not because you're after a reward. And so sometimes the the Hebrew words will have a nuance that we're missing in English. So Targum Ankalos, where it's talking about listen or hear the commandments. In the Aramaic, he translated that as Kabbalat, which means to receive. Like anime kabbalat, I receive something. So he says Israel's not just to have a, a reading experience when you read the commandment, You're supposed to accept them and to receive the words. Because if you accept and receive, then it will transform you, not just inform you. And just information is rampant. I'm up to my eyeballs with people who want information, but they don't want to learn. Because, see, if you learn, there's a transaction taking place. You are pursuing his heart. You are pursuing transformation through the words by accepting the words into you. If you're only seeking information, which we can do like little kids who ask you 20 questions between the house and the car, well, that's all we are. Little immature kids asking 20 questions between the house and the car, but it's never going to change anything we do unless it makes us arrogant with the information. But when we want to learn, that means we want to establish a relationship of disciple and teacher. Change who I am, Yeshua. Don't just give me the answer to the parable. Use the parable to change who I am. That's what matters. And this is seen as accepting the yoke of heaven. And this is what the rabbis say. you accept the yoke of the kingdom first. then you take up on yourself the yoke of the commandments. You don't take on the commandments before you take on the yoke of the kingdom. You say, well what do you do when you take on the yoke of the kingdom? Nothing. When you take on the yoke of the kingdom, you don't do one thing. But if you will take it on, if you will accept it, then you can put on the yoke of the commandments. Because if you put on the commandments first, you've kind of put yourself first. And now you're trying to pull him along behind you by doing the commandments. You can't do that. He has to be first. So the grace will follow if you just tune in and know that there is one God, then you can learn how to love him. Then you can learn what is pleasing to him. Then you can learn the Torah. But unless you come to that place of he is and I am not, he's the creator and I didn't create myself. He makes the commandments, I obey them. If we see him in that unique role, there is no one like him, then we can start that process of learning how to please him and learning what he loves, right? It says, it shall come about if you listen obediently, to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give. And so it's it's a love relationship. Listening is a love relationship because it involves your heart and your soul. Just listening to words does not involve your heart and your soul. Otherwise, I wouldn't have to ask Alan to repeat himself so many times because I wasn't listening. <laughs> What'd you say? What'd you say? But when the transaction actually takes place, I don't have to ask him what he said. I know what day the recliner is going to be delivered. <laughs> Although I might forget again. i have to ask again, but. It's listening to the commandments is a sign of your relationship with Adonai, even in the little things, even in the less rewarding things, you're deepening the relationship. And that's a good marriage. If you husbands can hear your wife, even in the little things, if wives, if you can hear your husbands, even in the little things, you're going to begin to create a good marriage because the little things, as it turns out, aren't that little. Blessings and mercy can follow that kind of love because really you just have to be sick to want to serve your spouse out of obligation, just because that was what you were supposed to do. That's not a marriage. It's loving your spouse that deepens that sense of obligation over the years. And if it's broken, it can be really difficult to fix. If it started out broken, it tends to get brokener and brokener. Well, we don't want to start out our relationship with the Holy One that way. Just think, well, I've got an obligation. I have to obey him. This is where you run into people who always emphasize this is the right way to do it. This is the right way to do it. this They do not have a relationship with Adonai. Because they don't care who they kill with it. But you can tell the ones who are obeying the Holy One because they love Him. And they will love people too, because they have accepted upon themselves not just the commandments, but the yoke of the kingdom. And so He is the King, and He wants us to hang on every word, not just the ones we like. So when we love, obedience follows. And that's the the challenge sometimes is that when people who don't understand what we're doing see us obeying a commandment, they might accuse us of trying to earn righteousness. They might say that we're just doing it out of obligation or we're trying to get an extra reward by keeping more commandments. They might tell you it's pointless because you're under grace. You're just wasting your time. And they might even call you wicked. Somehow, it's more wicked to keep commandments than not to. Nobody's I don't think ever thought through the, the how ridiculous that sounds. God's gonna think I'm wicked because I keep a few more commandments than you do because there's not that many. What is it like eighty three percent we agree on with most of the church. It's a small percentage that we don't, but somehow it's wicked if we keep a few more. but they don't yet see this close spiritual, physical relationship of the commandments where we're learning to be sensitive to our husband and what he's speaking. There's no commandment too small. And Rabbi Khan made the point that Adam didn't sin because he literally heard his wife. He sinned because he accepted the fruit. He could have heard the words and not eaten the fruit. But he accepted. So when you take the commandments in, when you accept them, they can change you. In the same way that wicked words can change you for the worse, so can the good words change you for the better if you will accept that fruit, the fruit of life. And if you accept it, you'll do it. That's the difference. If you accept it, you'll do it. So it's not just a physical ear. There's a spiritual ear. And Yeshua said, loving your neighbor is like loving Adonai with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's a covenant of kindness, a covenant of mercy. And it's because if you love your neighbor, it's just like the commandment. You accept them. I receive you. If you are my neighbor, you form a relationship. And sure, there's going to be some people that, like, I don't really want to be your friend yet. But... (laughs) (laughs) God's going to work on me. I'm going to want to be your friend before it's over. And we might be best friends before it's over. We don't know where it's going. But we don't do that just to get a reward or just because God said so. But if that's the only reason, go ahead and do it that way. But you need to let that word transform you until you can accept your neighbor. Doesn't mean you have to accept sin. It means you accept the creation of Adonai. You accept a human being because you genuinely want to form a unity within the body of Messiah. That blessing and mercy will follow that, if you will accept. Rabbi Torsky pointed out that mitzvah, the Hebrew word mitzvah, it means more than just command, but also when we say b'tzavta, it means togetherness. He says every mitzvah is a point of connection between he who commands the mitzvah and we who are commanded. The result of fulfilling a mitzvah is togetherness. So, some of those commandments we fulfill is connecting us with heaven. But remember, those he says, even the mishpatim. This Torah portion says the mishpatim. Much of that has to do with your relationship with human beings. So, if you fulfill those mitzvot, then there's going to be a togetherness formed with other human beings. Right. So, there's good deeds that you can do. That sometimes will ultimately be rewarded doesn't mean they're going to result in a relationship with God. What do we mean? Are there pretty wicked people who give to charity? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Are there wicked people who have done good things during their lives? Mm -hmm. Well, it kind of goes back to how the commandment works. There's some commandments that they're going to improve your commandment with the Holy One, the relationship with the Holy One. Other commandments are going to improve your relationship with people. Both are good. But ultimately, this is how the sages see it looks like wicked people prosper. Because no matter how wicked they are, they do a little bit of good in their lives. And he's fair. He's going to reward you for whatever good you do, no matter how wicked you are. But he says, for the wicked, that reward is released in this life. He'll go ahead and let you have that reward. So if you're doing charity, he will let you have the reward of that, but he owes you nothing in the world to come because he already paid you paid in full because what they were doing and giving to charity or doing these good deeds is just forming a relationship basically with themselves. They were doing it for that, that purpose of feeling good about themselves. And in the end, it only bonded them with the recipient. If you don't care a thing about the commandments of heaven, but you're giving charity to a person, it is bonding you to that person. That's where the good is. But you didn't do it for his glory, so there's nothing going this way. You're not being connected up and down. You're just being bonded with the person that you gave to or received from. And so it goes back to who do you want to know? Do you want to know just the human beings or do you want to know the father? Hosea chapter 2 is quoted when you put on the tefillin and when you wrap the finger wrap, the the little wedding wrap, if we want to call it that. You recite this from Hosea. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know then you will know the Lord. And so if we go on and we keep reading that passage in Hosea, you can see this summary of the blessing that Ekev promises if we will hear in love. It says, It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil. you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.